the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's the Wednesday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, questions about what we believe as Christians or why we believe it, pretty much anything and everything. Uh, All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area here in San Antonio, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. If you would like, you can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and send them in that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app using the hands-free feature. All you have to do is hit one button, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time for our main phone number. It's 340-9585. Because it's Wednesday, I've got a study tonight that's really interesting. I don't know that it'll be any good, but it's really interesting. Isaiah chapter 13 and 14. And Isaiah, this, this unbelievable vision that he sees goes all the way from the time that he's living to short-term fulfillment, next hundred years, and all the way down the quarter of time into the Great Tribulation in the Millennial Kingdom. So it's really, really an interesting Bible study tonight, Isaiah 13 and 14. And obviously, because today's Wednesday, Paula will be live in studio with us tomorrow on the program on the date, the edition. Ladies, it is your day to be encouraged, or if you have any questions or topics that you want to talk about with Paula, she will be here. Okay, let's get to some questions. Here's a question from Thomas. And I like this question, Thomas. I get it a lot, but I like this question. The question is, why would God make people if he knows they're not going to be saved and end up in hell? Thomas, a couple of things to remember. Um, The only two people that God made was Adam and Eve. Everybody else who's ever been born on this planet was born as a result of the natural process. Husbands and wives having kids. Um, but, but God only made two people. If we understand that, then we don't get the, well, why didn't God keep them from being born kind of questions. Here's why God allowed people to be born that he knew who weren't going to be saved. I mean, this is a great world. Now, we complain about it as Christians, but think about it. Um, anybody who's been outside today, the weather's absolutely beautiful. Um, um, I think, you know, about vacation. We're going on vacation in June like we always do, and I know the ocean is going to be there. And God gave good gifts to everybody, saved and unsaved, and he gave those gifts to us to enjoy. Now, the people that aren't going to believe, and you're right, God knows who's not going to believe, they still deserve the opportunity to live. God blesses the just and the unjust, the rain 
falls on the just and the unjust. Over and over we see, especially throughout the Psalms, we see that people are um, beneficiaries of God's greatness, of God's kindness, of God's love. And so he gives everybody a choice. And then God simply honors that choice. Now, Thomas, the way you ask the question, it's almost like sometimes we believe that God should just say, okay, well, they're not going to be a believer, so I'm going to not let them be born. But obviously God doesn't do that. The, the world is full of unbelievers. Jesus said the road to, to destruction, the road that leads to hell, is a wide, well-traveled road, while the road uh, that, that leads to salvation, to heaven, is narrow and few find it. So again, just comparatively, there's very few people uh, throughout the centuries who are going to be saved as opposed to those who are going to be condemned to an eternity separated from God. So God made Adam and Eve, all of the other people, are a result of humans doing what humans do and reproducing. And every one of them, Thomas, every one of them has a chance to make heaven their home. All they have to do is believe in Jesus. Oscar says, are we saved by grace or works? I'm confused sometimes. And how does being a member of a church factor in? Well, Oscar, I'm not sure what you mean by how does being a member of a church factor in. Uh, I know there are, are some religious traditions that teach, you know, if you're born into the Catholic Church, as an example, then you automatically get in. If you're born a Jew, people believe that we automatically get to heaven because you're God's chosen people. If you're baptized as a baby, well, that's going to cover your sins. None of that is true. None of that is true. If that were true, it would be salvation by works, even, even if that work is infant baptism. We're saved by grace, God's unmerited favor to the infinitely ill-deserving. I always say it that way because I want it to have a profound impact. God chose me, one of the foolish things, the weak things, the shameful things, the despised things, even the things that are not. God chose me. And believe me, Oscar, that was an act of grace. Now, there are some people who read James and get all freaked out. Well, you say you have faith. Show me your faith by what you do. That kind of good works is a result of being saved. It's a grateful response to having been saved. Make no mistake, though, Oscar, the act of salvation is very simply God reaching down from heaven to the lowest of low depths to pull people like you and me out of the pit of hell. And there's nothing but wonderful, wonderful grace in that. So being a church member doesn't help. Being a good person doesn't help. Trying to do good things, none of that helps. Oscar, we're saved by grace through faith. And that, the faith, not of our own, it is a gift of God. He does all the work. All we do is respond to the invitation. And when we do that, life and eternity changes forever. Here is a question from Natalie. Natalie says, Pastor Ron, are we chosen by God or do we have to choose God? Natalie, the answer is yes. <laughs> Both of those things are true. And there's no tension between the two. Uh, I was chosen, Natalie. You were chosen before the, the foundations of the world were laid. Why did God choose you? Because he knew you were going to respond. He knew that you were going to choose him back. And this is very important for us to understand. Um, you know, uh, my, my pastor used to say that... He always imagines when he gets to heaven, there's going to be a beautiful gate. And on the front side of the gate, it's going to say, enter of your own free will. And then he walks through the gate, looks back at the other side, and it's going to say, chosen by God. Both of those things are true. Who does God choose? He chooses, according to his foreknowledge, those who will choose him back. God doesn't choose people and force them to believe. God chooses people who are going to respond to the gracious invitation of eternal life. So, Natalie, both of those things are true. If that, um, if your question is a little more complicated than that, I'm not hitting it, then uh, either call or send back and I'll uh, do this. Uh, I'll, I'll try to get more information. 
340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Jason wants to know, are all sins the same to God? Um, you know, Jason, that's something that we usually come up with when we're talking about um, homosexuality or something like that. Well, why do you treat homosexuality like it's the worst of all sins? Um, all sins are not the same to God. Now, it is true, Jason, all sins separate us from God. But it's not true that all sins are the same. Do you remember when Jesus was talking about being handed over to the Romans, speaking to the the, the Jewish religious leaders, speaking indirectly of Judas Iscariot, he basically said that, you know, you're all guilty of a sin, but he who hands you over, hands me over to you, is guilty of the greater sin. So there are sins that are greater than others. They have far-reaching effects, greater consequences. Certainly, um, the, the law was established so that there was um, different degrees of punishment for murder versus manslaughter, what we would call manslaughter, um, intentional death versus accidental death. We also know, Jason, in the New Testament um, that Paul puts a special premium on sexual sin. He says, all other sins a man commits are sins committed outside of his body. But when we sin sexually, we're sinning against ourselves. We're sinning against the temple of God. And the idea there is that when we sin sexually, and this is all kinds of sexual sin, hetero and homosexual sin, when we sin sexually, we're giving the devil a stronghold in our lives. And so those sins have far greater consequences. Uh, I'll tell you another one that, that has greater consequences. We dabble in the occult or we, we seek familiar spirits. Um, we're opening ourselves up to all kinds of consequences, all kinds of pain. Um, so we have to be careful. So yeah, sins all separate us from God but all sins are not the same to God, nor are their effects or their consequences the same. You know, Jason, if you don't mind me going off topic just for a little bit, still talking about sins, but, um, you know, we have a, a tendency in our church culture to minimize some sins and exaggerate other sins. Um, I know a lot of people who would be quick to tell you that homosexuals are going to hell all the while they're sitting on a computer screen looking at filth and justifying it somehow. Or maybe they're involved in a relationship, heterosexual relationship that's ungodly. You see, we have a way of rationalizing our own sin while pointing the finger and condemning others. I think what God wants us to do is look inside our own hearts, don't worry about anybody else, but simply examine ourselves to see whether or not we're with Jesus, to see whether we're in the faith. And this Americanized concept that my sins aren't as bad, God understands, but those people out there, that's something that's really, really bad. You know, Jason, I said uh, in a program, and this is a year or so ago now, but um, I had somebody call in and uh, talk about revival. And I made the comment that I believe that the next revival is going to come, if if a revival is going to come, and certainly I don't have any insight into that, but if a revival is going to come, it's going to start with the outcasts of society. And it is my firm belief that if there is another move of God's Spirit, uh, it's going to start in the gay community. I really believe that. I, I think God's Spirit is going to move and and I had so many people either call or email with, with angry vitriol. Those are godless people. God's going to judge them. Why would you say that revival can't start there? But if you think about it, revival has always started with the worst of sinners, people who know they're sinners. And I think that's what's going to happen the next time as well. And we all need to be praying for a 
at least one last final move of God's Spirit before Jesus' return. And I would love to be here to see it. So it needs to start pretty soon. So, Jason, I hope that answers your question. Helen says, Pastor Ron, is smoking a sin? Helen, I wish it was, but it's not. Uh, It's not a good thing to do. It's an expensive thing to do. It's a filthy thing to do. Um, But it's not a sin. So if you are struggling with smoking, um, it's not going to condemn you to hell. Um, I think if God is speaking to your heart, maybe you asking this question is an indication that he is, then he's telling you, Helen, I've got more for you, better for you. So how about giving that up for me? And that way you wouldn't have to worry if it's a sin or not. Romans 14, 23 says, Anything not of faith is sin. So if when you smoke, you're feeling convicted by the Holy Spirit, and I'm not talking about feeling guilty, but feeling convicted by the Spirit, it's because He's already sort of knocking on the door of your heart, and He's asking you to put away that which keeps you from being used even more by the Lord. So no, it's not a sin. It's certainly not a good thing to do. It's not healthy. It's it's a terrible example. But it isn't a sin. And I would add, Helen, though you didn't ask, the same thing is true of occasional drinking. As a pastor, I've seen so much damage, so much pain caused by alcohol. I wish, I, I honestly get a little angry when I see commercials for beer and liquor and other kinds of things on television. I get angry because I know the pain that it causes. And yet it's just another tool. You can use it in a way that's acceptable to God or you can use it in a way that's unacceptable to God. Because it's ruined so many lives, it's just better. It's wiser. Not in a legalistic sense, but simply in a... Paul said, um, uh, I'm free in Christ. All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. And when we start pursuing only that which draws us closer to the Lord enables us to be used by the Lord, well, only then will we really be free. I have a pastor friend who was in a pizza place on a Saturday afternoon with some friends. They played a softball game. And they were in there and he had a beer in front of him and some of the other guys had beer as well. And when he looked up, he saw a woman who was just distraught beside herself. And the Lord spoke to his heart, said, you need to go over there and talk to her. And then the Lord interrupted, said, oh, wait, you can't because you chose to drink a beer today. And that compromises your walk. Anything that compromises, alcohol, cigarettes, anything that compromises your ability to be a servant of God, is something that we ought to get rid of. So, Helen, I hope that answers your question. Anonymous. This is one of my pet peeves. Anonymous, your question. He says, or she says, I don't know. I have a friend who only refers to God as Jehovah. Is that right? Whenever, Whenever you hear somebody use Jehovah, Yahweh, or when they write, used to be letters, now emails, G-D. Uh, anonymous, what you have is somebody who doesn't really know God. I'm not judging their salvation. I'm not talking about whether or not they're saved. But they don't know him. He's a stranger to him. G-D, or Jehovah Yahweh, has a name. You shall call him Jesus, we were told. And... When you see somebody like this, Jehovah, there's a, a sense of superior spirituality that is a deception, simply not true. You know, I think a lot of it stems from, you know, the old Jews who were scribes um, when they would transpose, the, the not transpose, but, but translate the, 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 transcribe is the word I'm looking for, transcribe uh, the scriptures. Uh, every time they would write the word Jehovah or Yahweh, 
Um, we don't know what it is because they left out the vowels. It was, um, or I'm sorry, they left out the the consonants. Um, and so, so nobody. They felt that the name of God was so holy that it couldn't even be written. And for reasons anonymous that escape me, we have decided. So many in our culture have decided that well, if they did that and God's name is that holy, then we shouldn't refer to Him by the name of Jesus. We should should keep that distance. But that's a very religious approach to a relationship with God. It's almost mocking the work that Jesus did so that we could be drawn near to God. Drawn near to me and I will draw near to you, says the Lord. So it, it always sort of breaks my heart. I know they think they're being spiritual, but what they're doing is demonstrating that they don't really know him. Their relationship with him is based on something other than intimacy or passion. And I don't think that's what Jesus ever intended. I don't think that he honors at all that standoff sort of distance. I think what Jesus would say to all of us, if we could just see him in the flesh for a moment, and I think he'd open his arms and say, come here and give me a hug. Now, we're to revere him. We're to be in awe of him. We're to have a healthy filial fear of God. But, but the awe, the reverence, is for who he is and what he's done for us. Again, from a grateful heart. The fear of God is a fear of not being in his will. Perfect love casts out all fear, because fear has to do with judgment, John Wright. So all we have to do is draw near, get as close to him as we possibly can, and I say it all the time in the program, just be with Jesus. And that's the relationship for which he died. I have a funny thing, anonymous people who don't know me yet, who haven't met me, or maybe they've just heard on the radio. And because, and then again, their heart's right, because they want to be respectful. You know, they will say, Pastor Arbaugh. And I tell him immediately, no, 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 I'm Pastor Ron. If you want to call me Ron, you can call me Ron. If you want to call me Pastor Ron, but not Pastor Arbaugh, please. I'm, it just makes me feel like I'm a thousand years old. But the real reason behind it is because um, I want them to understand that I want them to be able to know me. I want to know them. There's no real joy in a relationship that's a distant one. So what we want to do is get as close to the people of God as we can. Well, the same thing is true of the Lord. So it is one of those things when I hear people referring to God as Jehovah, um, it's just, it, it, it's painful for me. It's actually painful. 340-9585 for your live calls. Phones are quiet. We've got some time. We've got 30 minutes left and three minutes left in this side of the of the half hour. Um, Playa, I hope I, I hope I got your name right. Playa, uh, it says, can someone be a genuine believer and be bisexual? Uh, Playa, Galatians five and First Corinthians six both says that people who live in sexual immorality will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, based on those verses and those two books, your answer is no. Now, you can be a genuine believer and be attracted to both sexes. But then, because you're a believer, you say no to your flesh, so you can say yes to Jesus. We take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. But you can't claim to be a Christian if you're not doing, living what Jesus tells you to do and tells you how to live. You know, by the very nature of the name that we bear, Christian, we have agreed to agree with him. So what we do is we recognize that all sexual activity outside of marriage is sinful. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. A genuine believer, Pia, is presumed to really love Jesus, but 
if that person's behavior is disobedient, Jesus said, nope, they don't love me. And that would mark you out, identify you as an unbeliever. So um, we have to be careful of what we're being told in the world that we live in. Oh, God wants me to be happy. God understands. I have friends who are gay or who are bisexual, and, and they're Christian. If you live a lifestyle that identifies you as an unbeliever, Playa, it's because you are an unbeliever. And these are really important decisions that we have to make once and for all based only on the Word of God because the world that we're living in is calling good evil and evil good. And they want to affirm your sin. And the last thing we need is for someone to say, no, it's okay, you can do it. That's the whisper of the devil. So please understand... That if you're a genuine believer, you're going to love God and you're going to guard your sexuality like the treasure it is. Until you're married, you're going to use it just for Jesus. Well, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. It's Wednesday. All you have to do is call 340-9585 or 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the show, 340-9585. And honestly, I would sure love some phone calls and some questions because you're more entertaining than I am. Here's our first question for the second half from Darlene. She wants to know, will our pets be in heaven with us? Darlene, I don't know how old you are. I usually get this question from from really, really young kids, uh, and I always disappoint them. No, our pets will not be in heaven with us. Um, You know, our pets, and I'm a dog guy. Uh, Paul and I had the greatest dog ever. He was an evangelist dog. Whenever Paula would start to share Jesus with people, she's taking him for walks. He knew that she was going to be a while, so he'd just sit down at her feet, kind of look menacing, you know, don't mess with her, I'm going to protect her. But at the same time, he'd just be as patient as he possibly could. And uh, he was such a big dog and a beautiful dog that that uh, people wanted to pet him and talk about him, and so it was pretty easy to do. And, and um, you know, if any dog ever was getting to heaven, it would be him. However... Our pets are God's gift to us. We get to enjoy them here to make life better, to make life more bearable. Just that's, that's the purpose of pets. And I can tell you, Darlene, for sure, you won't need, uh, to, 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 you won't mourn not having your pet in heaven. Jesus will provide everything that you could possibly imagine and beyond. And heaven won't be lacking a single thing because your dog's not there. Only man was made in the image of God by that meaning specifically that only man is eternal. Um, Pets are just a gift. I think when we lose a pet, as painful as it is, our dog lived to be 15 years old. Um, Our first year here uh, in in, uh, Texas, um, our dog... Uh, had to be put down. He was um, just suffering, and I didn't want that to happen. Um, but that was, he was a gift from God. And my life, Paula's life, uh, our, even my boys' lives before we moved away, we were enriched immeasurably by him. But it's nothing compared to Jesus. So I hope that helps. Let's go to New Brunfels and talk with Marilyn on line one. Marilyn, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Um, I really appreciate, I I listen to you all the time, and I appreciate everything. And I was just, I'm going to ask you a question, but then I'm going to hang up so I can hear uh, the answer. Okay. Um, I I was wondering if you ever heard of somebody, um, a pastor by the name of 
Dan Moeller. Um, just a friend sent me something on, on him, and I, you know, I listened and everything, and I'm, I'm really close to the word and everything, but I just wondered what your opinion of him was, and I'm just going to hang up and listen. Okay, so Marilyn, before you, b- b- thank you. But before we hang up, can you, can you give me the spelling and the last name? Um, Dan Moeller. And the, how do you spell the last name? M-O-H-L-E-R. I think okay. he's in, um, like, Florida, but he's also in Pennsylvania. I mean, okay. I, all I kept thinking after I listened to him a couple of times, I was like, man, i got to call Pastor Eyes. I listen to that dude all the time on the radio, <laughs> so i got to see what he says. Okay. So, I'll like, ch- uh, I really would have, yeah. Thank you, Marilyn. Appreciate it. Um, um, what I'm going to ask you to do is tune in tomorrow to the Date Day program, and I'll do some research and maybe listen to a little bit of what he's got to say, but I'm not familiar with him, Marilyn, and it wouldn't be uh, fair uh, for me to comment on him. Um, I, I hope he's good. I hope he loves Jesus, but I'll do a little bit of research, and my producer's even now making a note um, to make sure that we check it out. So thanks for calling, and I'll let you know tomorrow, so please tune back in. Let's go to Shirts, Texas now and talk with Grant online, too. Grant, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, yes, sir. Hello. I had a question hi. about... Uh, hi there. Uh, my question is about Gnosticism in the early church. Uh-huh. Kind of had a passive interest in how it came to be and what it was. and Does it still exist today in some form or fashion? Yeah, it does, Grant. Good question. Uh, you know, it's amazing to me, you know, our, our New Testament is written in the first century. And um, we've got um, uh, three books um, that deal specifically with the heresy of Gnosticism. Um, Galatians, of course, it touches on it. But Colossians, First uh, John uh, and Second John deals with with the, the, the Gnostic belief. And the Gnostics then and now, here's what they have in common throughout the ages, then I'll kind of identify what some of the differences are. Um, what we have in common, the Gnostics then and now have always been messing with the character of God, the nature of God. The Gnostics believed in the first century, when these books were written, that Jesus Christ um, was was God. No, Nobody doubted that he was God, but they didn't believe that he could have come in the flesh because flesh was corrupt and the holy God couldn't have anything to do with corruptible flesh. And by that, they're missing the whole point, of course, of the virgin birth. Um, but, but the idea is it's, it was sort of a super spiritual, we know more than you know kind of thing. And these are the guys who thought they had all the answers. These were the intellects and the liberals of the day. Uh, that's why John, when he says, in First John 4, 1, he says, Brothers, test the spirits. Not every spirit is from God. And then he says this, Any spirit that says Jesus isn't flesh is the Antichrist. Now, what we've done with Gnosticism in the, the 21st century, Grant, is we've turned it upside down. We have no problem today. Um, admitting that Jesus was a man, he was a real historical figure. The evidence is absolutely overwhelming. Um, but what what we do today is we say, well, yeah, but Jesus isn't God. He was the son of God, some will say, or he was a good man or a prophet or a teacher, but he wasn't God. So we just deny it the other way around. So So the idea of Gnosticism, has just been sort of flipped upside down, but believe me, it still is around today. Uh, and when when we run into Gnostics, they're the ones who think they've got all the answers. Uh, some of the times it takes the form of New Age thought, you know, uh, well, it's not Jesus, it's the Christ consciousness or the Christ man. And um, um, again, these are the people who think they've got everything figured out. They think they know more than others. Uh, and the gospel has made, been made delightfully simple. Jesus came as a man. He lived as a man. He died as a man. And because he was without sin, we're saved. That's all we've got to confess. And Gnostics have been trying to change it from the very beginning of time, Grant. And, and again, remember, we're talking in the first... 20 years of the church 
these doctrines started to spring to life. We might wonder why. Well, the devil is busy. He's always trying to distort the nature and the character of God. And if he can challenge you with, with any sense of authority, most often because we don't know or we're not convinced, uh, if he can get us to believe that Jesus is not God, then he knows that we're not his. We're not, we're not saved. So that's what Gnosticism was. It was the pernicious heresy of the day in the first century church. And that's why it was addressed uh, so often in our New Testaments. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to my friend in San Leandro, California, Tanya, for uh, online one. Thanks for calling, Tanya. It's good to hear from you. Hi, Papa Ron. How are you? I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm good. I'm enjoying some sunshine now. We stopped with all the rain, which is nice. Um, but, <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's going your way, though, remember? It's going to go from the west yeah. headed your way. <laughs> so I have a question. We're studying the verse by verse on Zechariah, and um, our next chapter is uh, chapter 11. And so in Zechariah eleven thirteen, it said, And the Lord said to me, I have the new King James. Um, Throw it to the potter, that princely price that set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. And I started thinking, I know in the New Testament there is a reference to it, and I haven't had a chance to go and listen to the complete uh, Matthew, uh, your uh, Matthew study, where um, Matthew attributes Jeremiah um, for the 30 pieces of silver. And I, I'm trying to understand, I know there's no contradiction, but just wanted to get uh, what the, um, why it, it appears that there, there is one, but I know there's not. I'm sure there's a really good answer. Um, but I know you would help me with that because I, I have this uh, class on Friday, so I want to make sure I'm prepared. Okay, thank you, Tanya. I can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, obviously this is a passage, an, uh, a prophecy unintentionally fulfilled by Judas, um, um, the idea is they thought so little of Zechariah that they were they were mocking him at this point, his his uh, antagonists. Um, so he threw them into the house of the Lord. That that's just a a, a, a pittance. Now um, Jeremiah uh, also talks about um, the the thirty pieces of silver. And Jeremiah was a major prophet as opposed to Zechariah being a minor prophet. And, and so it would have been attributed to the major prophet first, not to exclude Zechariah, but the idea is, is a sense of priority. Now, when we talk about major and minor prophets, we're only talking about the volume of content. We're not talking at all about the, the importance of the prophecy or the, the veracity of the prophecy. But simply, um, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel—they're uh, the major prophets. Simply, the the, the content is overwhelming, and the minor prophets um, are are much smaller books and and with content. So Jeremiah would have gotten the credit simply because he was uh, a more well-known, more widely read, uh, a major prophet as opposed to a minor prophet. So thank you, Tanya. Appreciate it very much. I know we're going to see you pretty soon, so make it quick. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Raul. Uh, What would you say to someone who thinks they are a nice person and good enough for heaven? This friend doesn't think he needs to be saved. Well, you know, there's not much we can say to people like that, and there are tons and tons and tons of people like this. Uh, this is probably the single greatest objection and one of the most difficult to overcome, because until somebody sees their own sin, they, they cannot see Jesus. Uh, I have a son who is a, a wonderful human being, He's always been a good boy. I mean, the biggest trouble he ever got in was was toilet papering a house when he was in a school in high school. Um, uh, just a great, great kid, a very, very nice man. He works hard. He's got a beautiful family, and the world would look at him and say, "Yeah, no, that's a perfect family." Uh, the problem is uh, when people think they're nice, they don't th- know they need to be saved. You know, salvation is a rescue mission. If you don't need to be saved, 
you know, if you're out in the ocean and you're in a riptide and you say, no, I'm going to be fine when the lifeguard comes, you're going to say, no, I'm okay, got this, and you're going to drown. Well, it's exactly that way for people that you're describing, this friend. And the only thing you can say to him is, is, is explaining that the standard of heaven isn't nice, the standard of heaven isn't good, the standard of heaven is perfection. And there was only one who was perfect. Obviously, his name was Jesus Christ. And he who knew no sin became sin that we who would believe might become the righteousness of God. And it's a very important thing for us to wrestle with here. Because we have a tendency to look, well, perfection, that's God's standards are too high. But if somebody says that, then you could say, well, think about it for a moment. Would you want a God who is less than perfect? Would you want to spend eternity in a place that's less than perfect? I mean, heaven is a reward. And so if nothing immoral, nothing greedy, nothing impure is ever going to enter heaven, well, pretty much we've got to be perfect. And I've never had a problem getting somebody to admit they're not perfect. So then what I tell them is that, well, Jesus is the answer. You're nice, you're nicer than me, I'm sure of that. But because you're not perfect and you just admitted it, because you're not perfect, you can't go to heaven. And usually they'll just sort of smile at you and go on. Truth is, Raul, they don't want to stop sinning. And I think instinctively, everybody knows that if I come to God, i got to come on His terms. God is holy. And I just don't want to stop sinning, so I'm going to rationalize that I'm a good person. I do more good than bad. I'm nice to people. I'm kind to people. I pay my bills. I try to obey the rules. And I've actually had people like that say to me, well, if God doesn't want me in heaven because I'm a good person, then I don't want to be in heaven for eternity. And I just let them know, be very, very careful because when your heart gets that hard, you're in a really dangerous place. And as I said at the beginning of the question, Raul, there are just tons and tons of people just like that. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Madeline. She says, was Hunia... In Romans 16, 7, a female apostle. Uh, no, she wasn't. That She's noted as being outstanding among the apostles um, in, in the Greek is not including her as an apostle in the group. But what is being said here, it's a very nice thing that's being said about her, and there's no question this is a female name. Uh, I've had people bring up Huni. In fact, there's a, a, a website, I think it's called the Hoonia Project, and it's a, a website that advocates for, for women pastors. And if if Hoonia was an, uh, an apostle, then women can be pastors. Um, um, she was outstanding among the apostles. In fact, they all knew who she was, her reputation, her faith was exemplary. And this is a wonderful compliment. They're just saying that this is a, a woman who's serving God with all of her heart, and they trusted her. This was somebody who was spoken well of by, by the apostles, and that's all it means. So Hunia, female name, but she was not an apostle um, at all. She was simply a servant of God and excelled in her service, Madeline. Larry says, Pastor Ron, how can we trust the Bible to be reliable? Um, Larry, this is a question that you've got to answer for yourself. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of direction here, but the truth is, nobody can answer this. You've got to find out. You've got to find out. You know, when, when people ask this question, and at the same time, they're not motivated enough to find out for themselves, well, then what they're doing is they're just saying it's not that important. And Larry, there's nothing as important as this. And I've told this story many, many times on this show. But for me, this was the one battle that I had to win. Or I would never have followed the Lord. I, would, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. Uh, I, I had to know, how can I trust the Bible? Every time I had a question, and I'd ask Christians, and believe me, I was really, really curious, people would say, well, the Bible says. 
And I honestly didn't understand, Larry, how the Bible could be written by men and God. And I knew, as little as I knew about Christianity, I knew that it was was written by men. And I didn't understand the supernatural uh, character of the Bible. I didn't understand how God could push the pens of men, that this was literally God-breathed. And so I had to find out. And I just decided that since the question of my future eternally depends on uh, me knowing who God is and the Bible being the full and complete revelation of Jesus Christ until we're with him, uh, I had to find out whether or not the Bible was trustworthy. It became my mission in life. Uh, I, I studied nothing else for about three months, just short of three months. And one day I was completely convinced. And I told the story. I was at the Claremont School of Theology in Southern California, a very liberal school of theology, but they had beautiful facilities and tons and tons of study material. And I was sitting in this big, big room uh, with the door closed, books piled up all over the table. And it was almost like Jesus was right there with me in the flesh. Now, he was there with me. I know that. But it was almost like he was there with me in the flesh. And it was like he was looking at me saying, are you convinced yet? Come on, I know you're convinced. At that point, I just said, yes, I'm convinced. And from that day forward, I've never had a doubt about what I do. I've never had a doubt about my salvation. I've never had a single doubt about who Jesus is. And as I opened the Bible after that, I trusted completely in the revelation of God that came in his living and active word. So very important. Let me give you a couple of resource materials, Larry, that you can get a leg up on. Depending on how scholarly you want to be, um, um, I I highly recommend Josh McDowell's um, The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Uh, He's always updating that. Uh, It's a very, very scholarly read, so if you'd like to start with something a little lighter, just pass on that one. But it's really, really good, Uh, and there's a whole section uh, there about how we got our Bible, um, how the canon of Scripture came about. There's a smaller book called by Paul Little, L-Y-T-T-L-E, I think it's two T's, Um, Know What We Believe and Know Why We Believe, and there's a section there about the authority of Scripture. Um, Lee Strobel wrote a paperback, uh, The Case for the Bible, uh, and he does the same thing, and he does it in a way that's both interesting and challenging. And then for me, uh, once I was, I, I made up my mind that the Bible was really the Word of God, I wanted to go a little bit more in depth, and I got a book called uh, uh, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? by F. F., like Frank Frank, Bruce, B-R-U-C-E, um, and um, that that book uh, changed my life. He also, F.F. F. Bruce, has one called the, the, the Difficult Sayings of Christ that you can sort of tear into, and when there are perceived contradictions, um, he deals with those expertly, and, and just the, the more and more confidential gain in the Bible. And Larry, again, this is the most important decision you're ever going to have. When you find out you can trust the Bible, then you're going to be free. Sort of like being uncaged, unleashed. And God will let you loose and he'll do marvelous things through you. So, do it. 340-95... Oh, we only got about three minutes left, so don't not time for that. Here's an anonymous question. I know God is supposed to make me happy, but I'm not happy. Why would God... Let me struggle so much. Um, Anonymous, just by the way you ask the question, you don't know God. You see, you've got a God who's like a cosmic concierge. You want to give him orders every day. You want him to bring your food. You want him to serve you. That's not the way it works. We were created to serve God, not the other way around. God served us when he came to die for us, when he, when he became a man and died for our sins. Um, so anybody who thinks God's supposed to make us happy doesn't know him at all. 
the source of your struggle, Anonymous, is that you're being selfish. You're, you're concerned with you. You're crazy about you. And until you see yourself for who you are, a sinner, you won't see Jesus for who he is, a rescuer. And your happiness quotient will only be filled by surrendering to him. Jesus said, if you lose your life for him, that's when you find it. He said, if you find your life, and that's what you're looking to do, you're going to lose it. But if you lose it for him, well, that's when you're going to find it. So why would God let you struggle so much? The reason that you're struggling is because you're resisting God. And his arms are stretched out to you. He loves you. He's crazy about you. But, but you've got to come to him on his terms. And remember, he gives the orders. We say, yes, Lord. And we do what he tells us to do. And whether you're happy or not is irrelevant. What God wants you to be is two things, obedient and joyful. And being joyful comes from being with Jesus, from being obedient. And then most of the time you'll be happy as well. You'll be living the abundant life that he promised. But as long as you're trying to find out what makes you happy, well, that's when you're going to struggle. You know, Anonymous, every day... Uh, as I'm praying for people in, the, in just in a general sense, not specific people, I do that as well, but uh, I pray for the lost, the hurting, the hungry, the broken, the needy, the confused. You're in the category now of the confused and the hungry. You want more. God has more for you. Hey, Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow. Ladies, it's your day three. You can call us on the program tomorrow. I was going to give you the number again, but I don't need to now. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I'll be back, Lord willing, tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.